So, y'all, my name is Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm, I'm one of the pastors on our staff here at Church on the Trail. And I do want to welcome you again. If you're watching online, on Facebook or YouTube, or if you're here, you're here for a reason. God has ordained it in some sort of a way. Um, and maybe we don't understand those ways. But he has brought you here for some reason. To hear a message that he's got for us this morning. And so I'm thankful for that. Galatians chapter 4. Verse 4, 4 and 5. Say, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we may receive adoption as sons. The fullness of time. What does that mean? Y'all, there's a lot packed in to that phrase, the fullness of time. And I want to at least begin to unwrap it a little bit today. Kind of unpack what that means. So we're going to jump out of the book of Acts again for two weeks. Um, today, Christmas Eve and Sunday, uh, we're going we're gonna to jump out of Acts that we've been walking through Acts for several months now. And I want us to talk about uh, the birth of our Savior. The fullness of time. You know, the fullness of time began to be unpacked at creation when God spoke everything into existence. That's really when the, when the fullness of time began to, the snowball began to roll down the hill. We serve a God who is the God of creation. He is the God of love. He is the God of, of justice. And in all, in all of that, He is the God of history. He is the sovereign God of history and his amazing love and his amazing grace and his amazing goodness and his amazing justice. It is woven, everything, everything about him, every character trait that he has, every attribute that he has is woven down through time through history. It was his plan from before time began, which is just like my brain can't even really process that, but it was his plan from before time began to bring us back to him, to bring us back to him into a saving relationship. But he wants us to choose him, and we've got a chooser. Y'all know, somebody remind me where the chooser is. It's down by your appendix, and you have a chooser, and you do get to choose him. And y'all, it is really, it's just like, and I know I probably said this and it's redundant, but I remember the time that my, one of my kids, they were, I don't know how old they were, four or five or something, they went running through the, uh, both of them, I think one was chasing the other, running through our great room and I was sitting in my chair and they both ran over, jumped up in my lap and gave me a hug. I didn't solicit the hug. I didn't solicit the I love you. I didn't solicit the kiss. They kissed me on each cheek. That's way different than them running through and me screaming, get y'all's tails over here and give daddy a hug. It's totally different dynamic. So God, he, he does want us to choose him, and he gives us the ability to choose him. And he uses men and women, has used and is using and, and will use men and women to accomplish his plan that began before time began. And so this morning, I want us to see at least begin to see and begin to understand the incredibly great lengths that God went to and continues to go to to, to bring us back 
to himself. I want us to see his, his sovereign hand in history. I want to spend about 60 seconds and run through about 6,000 years of history. And somebody don't tell me after church that was 7,000, not 6,000. So I'm throwing a little number out there. So God, he creates everything. He, he speaks everything into existence. He breathes life into this man and this woman, Adam and Eve. He sp- people like me and people like you, he, he, he breathes life into them. And then they made a cataclysmically horrible decision and they chose to sin. Like me and like you. They chose and choose to sin. Chose not to listen to God, but to listen to the deceiver. Me and you do that. We have the ability to be deceived. And then they blamed each other. Right? Right? Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the snake. We do that every day of our lives, y'all. We blame each other. And that's what they did. And then God chose Adam and Eve's son, Seth. And then eight generations later, Seth's great, great, times eight grandson, Noah. God chose Seth. God chose Noah. He chose them because he gets to choose them. And he gets to choose them because he's God and we're not. And Noah builds an ark. And the only people that made it in were Noah and his family. And then God chose Noah's son, Shem, to be part of his plan. To be part of this snowball that's rolling down through history that began with Adam and Eve. He chose Shem. And then Noah's ten generations later grandsons, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, are born. Terah is their father. Abraham, Nahor, Haran. Brothers. God chose Abraham for his plan. Well, how come? Because he gets to do that. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God and he was saved. The Bible says he believed God and God credited him with righteousness. And God said the whole world, told Abraham, the whole world is going to be blessed through a descendant of yours. Talking to Abraham when he says that. So that gets us to Abraham. Now I want to ask you a question. How many of y'all have ever used Ancestry.com or somebody in your family has and you got a family tree going way back in time? Raise your hand. That, that, none of y'all have like done your family tree and lineage, just a few. It's a cool exercise to do. Well, how many of you got somebody like this in your family tree? <laughs> and if you didn't laugh, you are probably the person like that in your family tree, Right? We all do. It's Cousin Eddie, and we've all sort of got a Cousin Eddie probably in our family tree. But look, we, we, my family, we've traced ours pretty far back. Matter of fact, I'm told by my dad, or was told by my dad and by my granddad, that we go back to the tribe of Benjamin. So we've traced it way back. My wife has traced their family like way back. And I love genealogies. Like, I, I love it. I love, I love genealogies because they're just, they're rich. They're just so rich. Well, the New Testament begins with a genealogy. You got the Old Testament, Genesis running up to the end of the Old Testament, and then the, the New Testament is inaugurated by a genealogy. 
opens up in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. And I want to read this to you. And I'm going to jump in and out of it. And I want to just, I'm going to kind of give some, some narrative maybe or some commentary. But I want us to look at how the New Testament opens up in Matthew chapter 1. So it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I want you to see a snowball running down through history. Now, now his genealogy starts with Matthew's, I mean, starts with Abraham. So I got us up to Abraham a minute ago, right? So here's where Matthew begins to write. And he says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Well, Abraham was also the father of Ishmael. Abraham was also the father of Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Had seven. But Isaac was the son of promise. So it says Abraham was the father of Isaac. And then it says Isaac was the father of Jacob. Well, Isaac also had a son named Esau. Esau was the firstborn son of Isaac and Rebekah, which gives him birthrights. Firstborn son has this set of rights. But Esau chose to sell his birthrights to Jacob for a bowl of soup. Many years later, Jacob actually deceived his father into giving him his blessing. And th this genealogy that Matthew writes down, it doesn't mention Esau. It doesn't mention Esau at all, but he's going to come up again in a minute and we'll get to him. Well, why is he not, why is Esau not in the family tree? And it's because Isaac is the son of promise. So Isaac is the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Well, Judah had 11 brothers, but Judah was the son of promise. Judah jumped up on the snowball. Why? Because God put him up on the snowball. God's working his deal, and he's working through Judah. And the Bible says in verse 3, And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Holy moly, there's a woman in the genealogy. Y'all... Ancient Jewish genealogies did not contain women. Now, clearly, there had to be women or there wouldn't any, be any begots. But the, they were not recorded in any genealogy. So it's crazy that Matthew includes Tamar. And Tamar's got a little bit of a history. Because Tamar is actually Judah's daughter-in-law. But Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, who were twins, by Tamar, through this sordid set of affairs. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Holy moly, y'all, there's another woman. And this woman is a prostitute named Rahab, a harlot. But Rahab became part of the family of faith, and God used her in a mighty way. Go read Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6. God uses Rahab in a mighty, mighty way. So Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, another woman. And this woman is a foreigner. This woman ain't Jewish. She's a Moabitess. So Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. David generally thought of as the greatest king of Israel, maybe the greatest king that ever lived in the history of the planet, King David. But David was an adulterer. David was a murderer. 
And the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. Well, y'all don't make no sense. David is an adulterer. David is a murderer. And David is a man after God's own heart. Are you telling me that God's heart is for murderers and adulterers and Moabite people and prostitutes? You telling me God's heart is for sinners? Well, God promises David that his throne would be established forever. And then the Bible says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, another woman. I'm not counting, but I think that's four women so far in the genealogy. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. What a weird way to say that for Matthew. You reckon why does he say it that way? Well, he says it that way says it that way because Uriah is the guy that David got knocked off. The wife of Uriah was Bathsheba, who David was peeking at while she was bathing, you know, down while he's looking out from his palace overlooking. All of that is packed in those little words in the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, it's King Solomon, probably the wisest, one of the wisest men that ever walked the planet. King Solomon. Well, God uses wicked kings and, and good kings and, and kings that look down at somebody bathing and kings that have people knocked off. And Solomon had a whole bunch of concubines, so he uses good and bad and all of that because he's God. So Solomon is the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was an incredibly good king. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram was a terrible king. Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the greatest kings that Israel ever saw. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh was one of the worst ever. Manasseh was evil, depraved, murderous, nasty. Manasseh, the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon, which was in about 600-ish B.C. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So what you see in that, I hope none of y'all fell asleep while I was running through all them names, but what you see in that, like, I love it, you see good folks and you see bad folks and you see Jews and you see pagans and you see shepherds and you see kings, good ones, terrible ones, servant kings and murderous kings. You see Moabite folks, you see men, you see women, you see an image of y'all and me. That's what you see in that genealogy. Real people with real lives that are all broken. You know, every life, every one of those people are broken, sinful people. And God weaves all that together. It's a genealogical masterpiece. And all the while, while all of that history of the, of the snowball that's rolling down through that, that, that family tree, through that genealogy, 
All the while, God's got his prophets telling us how it's all going to play out. The prophets keep telling us along the way as the snowball's rolling what's going to happen and, and they're speaking for God. Well, did Israel listen to them? Well, sometimes they did, but mostly they didn't. I wonder if me and you would have been listening to the prophets. I got to think probably sometimes we would, but probably mostly we probably wouldn't because we ain't no different than they are. The prophets are speaking all throughout that time. Go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. And there's this, this scarlet thread of the Messiah that's just woven through the whole Old Testament. And there's prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of the coming Messiah. That he would be born of a virgin. And that, is, that he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. There's a lot in that term, God with us. It's in Isaiah chapter 7 that he would be born in Bethlehem in Micah. Isaiah and and, and Malachi wrote about him being preceded by by John the Baptist, that he'd be preceded by a dude that would pave the way. And Isaiah writes in in chapter 11 of his prophecy that he'll be from the line of Jesse. Well, who who was Jesse? Y'all remember who Jesse was? Jesse's King David's pop. And that the spirit of the Lord would rest on him. Jeremiah chapter 23 records God declaring that he'll raise up a righteous branch. The Bible says a righteous branch from King David's line. In Hosea 11, the Lord says, out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. And, in, and if we look at history in response to Herod's attempts on the life of Jesus, Joseph, uh, his earthly father, Joseph, is warned in a dream to take His family to Egypt where they stayed until King Herod died and they come back. Man, y'all, the number of of Old Testament prophecies is staggering. And these are just a few. I mean, really just a little handful of the ones that surround his birth. Not to mention the ones that surround his life and his death. These just surround his birth. And so we see God weaving weaving his family tree together, giving us hundreds of little prophetic nuggets along the way. Read the Old Testament, y'all. It is rich. It's rich. It's not Jesusless. He is all over from Genesis 1-1. So, he get, so the Lord gives us in his, in his word these little prophetic nuggets along the way, and all of it culminates in the birth of the Savior. All of it is, le- it, it, it is all leading up to this holy night that's coming. It's the understatement of the, of the forever when you say God's got the whole world in his hand. Like he totally has the whole world, which includes time and space and history and everything. He's holding it all in his hand. And he wants everybody that's ever lived on that planet to come back to him. It's fullness of time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So we just, we walk through this beginning of Matthew chapter 1, the the lineage of Christ, and we, hopefully you can see God's sovereign hand playing all that out in in the family tree, because our God is sovereign over history. The history that's recorded in the Bible and the history that's not recorded in the Bible. You do know 
that this book is not an exhaustive history of everything that ever happened on the planet. It's not. It's a history whose purpose is to lead lost people into a relationship with the one that wrote it. Y'all get that? That's the purpose of Scripture. It doesn't contain every event that ever happened on the face of the planet. So God's in control. He's sovereign over everything recorded in Scripture and everything that's not recorded in Scripture. He uses it to prepare the world for that holy night that is coming. So what was going on at the time that Jesus was born? And maybe even a little bit preceding his, his birth. Well, several things happen during the time right before, the few hundred years right before the Lord's birth. Over a couple of hundred years, we see the development in that part of the world. We see the development of a common language. We see favorable means of travel. And we see urban civilizations kind of sprout up that all of that made possible the rapid spread of the message of Christ. It made everything available for the gospel to spread. To include at the time of his birth, there was a relative peace and stability in the Middle East. So the time was right for the Son of God to be revealed to the world because God is unfolding history. The time was right spiritually. You should have, you got. I probably should have asked you this 15 minutes ago, but if you don't have a worship guide, let somebody know and we'll get one to you. But the time was right spiritually. The Jews were free from idolatry. They were looking for a Messiah. They'd really been looking for a Messiah for a couple thousand years, but they're really looking for a Messiah. Now, their idea of Messiah was jacked up, right? But they were looking for him. The Old Testament had been canonized, which means the Old Testament was really uh, existed in the way that, we, that it exists today. The creation of synagogues, y'all know what a synagogue is? The creation of synagogues uh, happened during this time right before Christ's birth. All of that made the spread of the message of Messiah much easier. The time was right spiritually, the time was right uh, culturally. The common language of the day was Greek. Greek is a very expressive language. Why do you think the language, they, that we needed to have a common language going all across Asia, down into Israel, and down into North Africa? The common language was Greek. It was the language of trade. It was a language of commerce. It was the language that everybody kind of could speak. Well, couple of hundred years before Jesus' birth, the Old Testament is translated into what language do you think? No, no, no. It was written in Hebrew. What language was it translated into? Greek. Well, why did God do that? Because the common language of the day was Greek. So then the Old Testament, the scriptures are available for almost everybody to be able to read. So the time was right culturally. The time was right politically. The Roman Empire was the dominant force in that day, and under the umbrella of God's sovereign hand, there was really three kind of assets that God put in place to help with the spread, the coming spread of the gospel. One is that there was a relative peace. There wasn't hold hands, sing kumbaya kind of peace, but there was a relative peace um, that existed. It provided social and economic and political stability. Times were kind of stable. Rome was nasty. I get it. The, the, the Roman army, I get it. 
but there was not crazy warfare going on all over the place. That allowed the early missionaries and the early preachers of the gospel to travel freely through the Roman Empire. There was a Roman peace. There was this, the Roman law that gave citizens living in the empire certain rights that helped for the gospel to be able to spread. There was the road systems that were built in the two, three hundred years before Christ. Many of those roads are still in use today. Well, what roads do you think Peter and Paul and, and, and Philip and all of the guys, what roads do you think they used to share Christ immediately after the resurrection? Immediately after the ascension? Immediately after the birth of the church? It's the roads that Rome built right preceding our Lord's birth. All this stuff in that three or four hundred year time span, and, and most people call that time span the silent years. Well, I don't think it was so silent. I think God is setting the stage for the birth of his son. He's weaving a story, y'all, down through time. And he's using people that don't even know they're being used. That's what we see all throughout history. And it began at creation. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Did I say Abraham, Isaac, and Esau? No. I said Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at Genesis 25. Verse 21, starting in verse 21. It says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was barren, couldn't have a baby. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And verse 22 says, The children struggled together within her. What, what children? Jacob and Esau struggled within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went. And inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided, and the one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. That's contrary to the culture of the day, that the older shall serve the younger. She probably thought, what in the world is he talking about? From Esau come the Edomites. Sometimes they're called Idumeans. They come from Esau's line. If you look at a map, Edom is in the south at the bottom of, of Israel and to the west of the Dead Sea. That whole area is called Edom. And so the Bible says here, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The Edomites from Esau and Israel from Jacob. 300 years or so after Isaac, Moses leading Israel out of slavery, right? They're wandering in the desert. They come up to Edom. They come up to the gate of Edom. And the Edomites wouldn't let them through. Saul, Israel's first king, fought with Edom. David conquered Edom, killed about 18,000 soldiers at the Valley of Salt. The people of Edom helped capture Jews, turned them over to Babylon during the deportation to Babylon that Matthew talks about in Jesus' genealogy. There was constant enmity between Jacob and Israel and Esau, Edom. Constant enmity between Israel and Edom. Between the lines of Jacob and the, and the lines of Esau. Numbers chapter 24. Verse 17 says, A star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and Edom shall be dispossessed. Jacob, Israel, Esau, Edom. And the Jews looked at this in Numbers, 
And they said, this is telling us that a king, the king of kings, is coming out of Jacob's line. That a scepter, who carries a scepter? Does a pauper carry a scepter? No, the king carries a scepter. So a scepter will rise out of Israel. Written way long before Jesus shows up. Well, what does all of that have to do with Christmas? Well, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Herod. What you imagine Herod's family tree looks like? It probably ain't got a lot of branches. No, what do you reckon Herod's family tree looks like? Where does it go back to? Who are King Herod's people? Herod was an Edomite. You trace Herod straight back to Esau. Herod is from Idumea. Esau was his great, great, yada, yada grandfather. And for Herod, all the glory, all the power, all the influence of that day belonged to King Herod. Herod was a mighty, mighty, mighty king. Herod was a dirtbag too. Herod was evil, nasty, murderous, paranoid, but Herod was the power broker of the day. Incredible builder, built a series of fortresses down the east side of, of Israel, and they were really fortresses because he was so paranoid, he constantly thought he was going to be attacked and it was one place to the next that he could run to. Masada, if you've ever heard of Masada, Masada was built by Herod. He built a palace fortress called Herodium. Unbelievable place if you've ever been to Israel. Herodium. At the base of Herodium, it's many dozens of acres, the, the, um, the, the whole uh, complex. The pool at Herodium is 1,100 feet long and 100 feet wide. Right? 1,100 feet. It's three football fields. Massive pool. The palace sits up on top of a hill and it overlooks to the west. It overlooks Bethlehem. Masada was built by the Dead Sea where his, where his, uh, his ancestors, the Edomites, settled. The tower at Erodium rose 200 feet above the Judean hillside. The ruins of it are there to this day. It's called Herodium National Park. It's a tourist site. And all you knew probably when you walked in today about Herod was he killed babies at Christmas time. Didn't know Herod's kin people played such a, um, such a major role in that holy night that is coming. In the days of Herod the king. A lot packed into that too. I want you to look at this slide that's up on the screen. And you'll see Herod's that's what's Google Earth. Ain't Google Earth cool? That's Herod's, that's what's left of, of, of uh, Herodium right now. And there's a lot left. If you zoom in, there's a lot left. But that's, that's where it is. That arrow's pointing to the Judean hillside around Bethlehem. And y'all, when the sun is in the eastern sky, a shadow is cast over and across from Herodium over and across and covers the hills around Bethlehem. And what it said to the people there was that the guy that lived there, that he was the guy. 
King Herod, that he was the guy. Because he was the power man of the day. That's what it said. He's the guy. And you and I are asked to believe, and the Jews back then asked to believe that the little baby that's born over here, not the guy here, not, not the guy here, not the super powerful, crazy, influential power man of the day. You're asked, and I'm asked, and they were asked 2,000 years ago to believe that the little baby that's born in a nasty, filthy cave right there, you're asked to believe, no, 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 he's the king. The helpless little baby, he's the king, not, not this dude. That's what they were asked to believe. That that little baby born under the yoke of tyranny and, and oppression and literally in the shadow of the king. That no, 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 he's the king. And, and I would imagine that you and I, if we were there at the time, that we would have struggled to believe it. I can, I would. I mean, I'm telling transparency, y'all. I would. I would have said, nah, man, the big dude in the big house, he's the one. He's got the money and he's got the power. But no, it's the baby. That's what we're asked to believe. It's a pretty unlikely story, is it not? But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he was and is in the business of making the unlikely likely. He's in the business of, making the, of turning the unlikely into absolute fact. Is it likely that a 125-pound little shepherd boy would single-handedly whoop up on a seven-foot giant named Goliath? Is that likely? I don't think so. Is it likely that Gideon and his army of 300 people would whoop 132,000 Midianites? Is it likely that Saul, the Pharisee, the Jesus hater, the Christian killer, would become Paul, the Jesus freak who wrote a third of the New Testament? Is that likely? Oh my gosh. I look at my own life. Is it likely that Ed, the guy that grew up Jewish, would be standing here preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ every Sunday? Are you kidding? Like, absolutely the odds are a bajillion to nothing. Without the providential, sovereign hand of God who controls history, the answer to all those questions is a big fat no. But if we can begin to understand and if we can begin to, to get our arms around the character of, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if we can begin to get our hands around his attributes, his love and his grace and his mercy and his justice and his sovereignty and his goodness, like, oh, like his goodness. If we can begin to get our arms around who he is as he's revealed in the pages of Scripture and as he's revealed in the entirety of our lives, then the answer is, of course. Like, of course it makes perfect sense. All of it makes perfect sense. So what does that have to do with today? What all those facts, and I gave you a bunch of facts today. What all those facts have to do with this season that we're in in 2021? Well, here's what I believe, and I believe this is sure as I am standing right here today. I believe that what was born and who was born that first Christmas, that, that holy night, was hope. That hope was born in that filthy 
nasty manger on one of those caves on the hillside in Jerusalem, excuse me, in Bethlehem. Hope was born. In the Old Testament, hope was grounded in the God who, who, who performed acts of deliverance, physical deliverance. But there's, a, there's an in-the-future component of that. There's a looking towards a deliverer. There's a looking towards deliverance. Well, here's a shocker. Israel wasn't always faithful, and I would say, are you and I always faithful? And the truth is, we will turn our backs on God in a second. And for Israel, hope was not lost. God pleaded. In Malachi chapter 3, God pleaded with them, return to me and I will return to you. He's pleading with you today, return to me. Return to me. We say all the time around here that our mission is to help people find their way back to God and grow. I don't care where you are. We want to help you find your way back to God. And it was this forgiving God that Jeremiah describes as the hope of Israel, our Savior in times of trouble. In Jeremiah 14, the psalmist writes in Psalm 130, he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. O Israel, hope in the Lord. He says, I wait for the Lord. I wait in hopeful anticipation. I wait for the salvation of the Lord. Micah writes in chapter 7. He says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will look towards the Lord. I will wait for the Lord, the God of my salvation. And he says, my God will hear me. Y'all, he will hear you. Wait for him. He will hear you. So many of the Old Testament writers, they write about the hope that's to come. So even, y'all, with trial after trial after trial and disappointment after disappointment after disappointment and real, like, like straight-up, legit feelings of hopelessness, there was always hope because God is faithful. God is merciful. Jeremiah writes in Lamentations, there's new mercies every morning. Not every other morning. Every morning. I'm so messed up, I'm more thankful that there's new mercies every morning than anything else in Scripture. Like every day we get a reboot. And God's mercy is new every morning. And His faithfulness, His faithfulness in the midst of our unfaithfulness, He's faithful. He's a promise keeper. He's always been a promise keeper. And he always will be. And in the pain and in the struggle and the realities of life, there is hope because he's a promise keeper. He is not a liar. A friend of mine buried her daughter Saturday. You ain't supposed to do that, right? You're not supposed to bury your 22-year-old daughter. Real pain. Real struggle and in the midst of that and she got up and spoke at the funeral for 15 minutes I don't think I could have done it but you know what fueled that hope 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 what kind of hope hope that she would see her daughter again hope that's grounded on the character and the attributes of the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob y'all you're not supposed to bury your 22 year old daughter it is not 
supposed to happen that way. But we live in a world that is tainted and fallen and broken. And those kind of things do happen. But we can cling to hope. My dad found hope November the 10th. Died November 11th. And the hope is I get to see him again. The hope is Brandy gets to see Sierra again. It's hope. Giants fall. And there's healing. So the hope that seemed to be hiding behind a rock somewhere for so long for Israel became flesh that day. And all of the promises that are made and all of the prophecies that were given, they all culminate in the birth of hope on that Judean hillside. That holy night. And I want to invite you all to, to, to show up Christmas Eve because we're going we're gonna to talk about that holy night on Christmas Eve. But all of the, all of the history from the second God speaks things into existence up through that holy night, they all, y'all come on out, they all teed up and set the stage for the coming of the Messiah, the King of Kings. The King of Kings. It's, it's hope, man. And if you don't have that hope, that hope is just waiting. What does God say? Return to me. There's not a period there. He says, return to me and I will return to you. Choose him. If you've never said yes, if you've never chosen him, he wants you. He longs for your heart. And you see him using all these messed up, jacked up people in history. And he uses all of them and their stories. Not just to say, look at the cool facts I know. <laughs> no. He uses them to accomplish his mission of, 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 of reeling you back in. Because that's what was broken in the garden. And you and I get to pay the price for what happened so long ago in the garden. But he wants us back. He wants you back today. If you're watching online, he wants you back. And I'm begging you. If you, if you are not a Christian today, if you have never said yes, yes, there's justice. Yes, there's grace. Yes, there's mercy. Yes, there's love. All of that. It's all who God is. It's not some list of do's and don'ts, man. It's not. He wants your heart. I read this week that the greatest, that the distance between heaven and hell is the 15-inch difference between your mind and your heart. You can have all the knowledge in the world. You may could walk up here and recite all this from memory because you were forced to as a child or something. But if none of that has ever infiltrated your heart, you know, you're lost as a goose. He wants your heart. He's he wants your heart. 
He had David's heart. Simple as this. Repent, turn away from your sin and turn towards him. Confess that he is the Savior. Believe that that death on the cross really did take care of your sin. It really did take care of it. And it'll take care of the sin from that day forward. And believe that he walked out of the grave alive. And he did, really alive. And he went in really dead. So let today be the day that you say yes to that. The message of the birth of the Savior and the message of the death of the Savior and the message of the resurrection of the King of Kings, it demands a response. And if you do not respond, that's a response. So it demands a response. So please don't go to bed tonight without considering that offer. Y'all pray with me. Lord, let today be the day that somebody walked in here this morning, somebody went Facebook Live, somebody clicked on the link on YouTube. Lord, and they heard a message from you. They heard the message of your son. And they want to embrace that message because they want to embrace a relationship with you. So Lord, let them just say to themselves or out loud, Today is the day where I turn away from the junk in my life and I turn towards you. Let today be the day that they say, I believe in you. I believe that that death, your death on the cross, took care of my sin. Lord, let them cry out to you to to, to be saved. So Lord, we thank you for the work that you're doing in people's lives. Lord, we thank you for being the sovereign God over history. Lord, let us look through, a, through, through your lens at the world. Lord, let us look through, through your eyes at the people that we come into contact with. Lord, let us not just be hearers of the word. Let us be doers of the word. Lord, let us let people look at our lives and say, what is it that is different about you because I want some of that? Lord, let us be those people. Let us be people that just reek of you. Let us be people that just reek of your message. Lord, let us be good and faithful witnesses for your son. Lord, we're honored and privileged to play some kind of role in helping people to find their way back to you. And let us be faithful at doing that. Lord, I ask you to bless every hearer of your word today whether they're here in person, whether they're watching online, or whether it's Thursday afternoon and they clicked on this to to watch it, that you pricked their heart to listen to this message. Lord, I pray for them and their families that they would be safe during the holidays. Lord, I pray that during this season, that as cliche as it is, that we really understand the reason. Lord, I pray that We got a glimpse of your heart this morning. Let us just begin to love you in the smallest way that you love us. Father, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.